Hi, everybody. I'm Alistair Stevens, and welcome to this Point North one-shot discussing the 1986 classic fantasy, the cult classic fantasy labyrinth. This is going to be a fast discussion tonight because I am on the clock. This is a rescheduled discussion from earlier this week, and I have an hour, no more. I can't go over because... Well, because I have another show right after this one, and if I start that one late, then, well, that's just a snowball that I can't start rolling. So we're going to do this entire thing in an hour, and then if you're so inclined and you happen to support Point North Media on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, you can join me for an hour of unscripted Q&A. I already have some fascinating questions for tonight, so if you uh, if you are so inclined, and if, as I say, you support uh, Point North over on Patreon, you can head over to the Point North Patreon page where you will find the link to that video. I can waste no time at all, because it turns out that there's a lot to discuss in Labyrinth. You guys, I'm going to split tonight's discussion into two I was going to say roughly equal, but probably not entirely equal chunks. The first half will be entitled Labyrinth. It's a movie about lots of things, not just sex. The second half will be entitled, no, but really it's just about sex. It's super about sex. And that's fine and good and fascinating. And we're going to talk about all of it. But we're going to begin by looking at all of the less explicitly sexual elements contained within Labyrinth. I think that's probably about as far as we can go. I don't want to say non-sexual or asexual elements contained within Labyrinth because, guys, there aren't many. I started making a list before sitting down to begin this live session of all of the symbols and icons and metaphors for sexuality, of sexuality contained within the film, and I gave up because it's everything. It's, it's everything. It's every frame. It's every character. It's everything in the movie is basically connected with Sarah's budding sexuality. So we're going to talk about all of that, but I'm going to push all of that as far back into the discussion as I possibly can so that I can cover some of the other really interesting things that Labyrinth does. Um, it's so great to have everyone here with me in the YouTube chat. We have 30 people here tonight. Lauren has called out already so many thresholds thresholds are becoming something of a recurring joke here in Point North Media live sessions because, well, because I talk about a lot of fantasy fiction. And fantasy fiction is in part predicated upon the importance of the necessity of the transformative capacity of thresholds. Liminal states, too, those moments when we're caught between two sides of a threshold, but contained within Labyrinth, well, we're basically talking about nothing but threshold after threshold after threshold. Each threshold testing Sarah or tempting Sarah in some really interesting ways. Again, I can't possibly do a close textual read of the entire movie because that would be a two-hour discussion in and of itself. But it is worth noting, of course, that yes, the crossing of thresholds, as important in this story as it is in every fairy tale, and perhaps that's where we should begin. Labyrinth is, in many ways, a completely conventional, completely classic fairy tale. It has deep associations, deep roots that go all the way back into, into Greek myth, effectively, go all the way back to Daedalus, go all the way back to, to uh, the labyrinth of Crete, go all the way back to Theseus. These are iconic ideas that have spread forward from that time, but if we're looking for the real inspiration of labyrinths, we're not going to find it in ancient Greece, we're going to find it in medieval Europe, we're going to find it with the advent of what we would now consider the modern fairy tale. Sarah is all but explicitly tugged into the realm of fairy. And if you have been following along with my Tolkien series, There and Back Again, there is a lot in this movie that you will find explicitly familiar. Not just the depiction of goblins, not just the depiction of fairy, this, this magical realm where reality is somewhat fluid, but 
at a deeper level. The idea that we never enter fairy and leave untransformed, the idea that nothing comes without a price, the idea that valor can be sufficient, but it should also be leavened with wisdom, with courage, and with a dauntless spirit. Sarah escapes the labyrinth. Sarah saves the baby, saves the day, effectively, because she doesn't give up, because she is actually kind of a great fairy tale heroine. She has a lot in common with Red Riding Hood, even with, with older and kind of less complete, somewhat more representative uh, fairy tale archetypes like Goldilocks or Snow White, for example. This is a classic fairy tale story. And that's evident right from the very beginning of the film, where we have this really interesting false open, where Sarah is in her in her dress reciting the lines of this play to the owl that she sees um, in a park that is in the real world located in Buckinghamshire in England and is just gorgeous, just beautiful. And the artifice of that, the pretense of that, cues us immediately to to look at the story in, in a way that we might not expect to look at a Jim Henson, you know, executively produced or co-executively produced, co-edited by George Lucas 1986 fantasy adventure. I have talked before in the Point North One Shots about the mid-80s fantasy Willow, which also has a powerful George Lucas connection, a much more powerful George Lucas connection than Labyrinth, actually. But that is a fantasy story that speaks to the, the rise of high fantasy, the post-Lord of the Rings high fantasy through the middle of the 1980s. It's a classic example of that subgenre. Labyrinth is not. Labyrinth doesn't speak at all to high fantasy as a concept. It is just a fairy tale. It is pure and simple. And in that sense, it is so very much older in form and in shape and in substance and in intent than a movie like Willow. It is such an odd anachronism, even for 1986, which might account for the movie's commercial failure. It, it has an estimated budget of $25 million. The initial box office run grossed $12.9 million. And even in the 80s, a movie losing money was very rare. It was a critical disaster. It was certainly a commercial disaster. It sent Jim Henson into the worst, uh, the worst depression of his entire career. And this movie is the reason that he didn't direct any more movies until he finally died in 1990. This was it for him. This was his shot. And we must remember coming into this that Henson had already established himself as a director, as a creator of wonderful puppets, of course, as a worker of, of frankly, incalculable magic. But the failure of this film robbed us of two more, maybe three more Jim Henson movies. And if you're a fan of 80s fantasy, as I am, even 70s fantasy, then that is, that is a burdensome thought. It is a burdensome thought to, to think for a moment that Labyrinth, which I have to say, I love. I think this is a terrific film. I think it's a terrific story. I think it's every bit as good as anything that Henson produced through the course of his career, that this staggering commercial failure deprived us of those additional uh, additional movies. Labyrinth has, of course, been reappraised in the years since 1986. It has become 
I think it's fair to say, a legitimate classic. It is one of those rare movies which didn't find its audience at all when it was first released and then slipped into cult classic status. I remember VHS tapes of Labyrinth being passed around my middle school in the very late 1980s and early 1990s. I remember that vividly. I remember this being almost almost contraband. This was this was something that you simply had to see. This was this was a forbidden text. This was an apocryphal text that you simply had to see. But then, as the movie gained traction, as it became more and more popular, it did what few cult classics do and became, I think, a legitimate classic. It became a legitimately well-regarded example of its form. It was simply, well, not necessarily ahead of its time, not necessarily, you know, after its time, but, but certainly not of its time. It is too smart by half. It is too complex by half. It is too progressive by half. And for people who were coming into this off the back of movies like Willow or movies like The Dark Crystal, for example, you're, you're not going to find that, that familiar fantasy structure here. You're going to find something older and wilder and more dangerous and more sexy. There is an edge to this movie that I find completely fascinating. And we'll circle back around to that right at the end of the session because... I do want to talk about the climax. Um, not the climax, I guess. What I really want to talk about is the dating mall. What I really want to talk about is the dance party in Sarah's bedroom because that leaves a bad taste in the mouth. And I think I finally, after years of thinking about this movie, I think I finally figured out why that is problematic for me. So we're going to get to that right at the end. But I want to begin, as what I want to begin is by looking at the, uh, the YouTube chat here because everyone is being brilliant and I am missing it. Yes. Elizabeth says, this took a very depressing turn. I've always loved this movie with my whole heart. And Hanson, I know, I know. It goes to show that even great artists are at the mercy of, of commercialism, at the mercy of their audience, in a sense. And yes, great art has gone unappreciated throughout the ages, and terrible art has been fated throughout the ages. I mean, art is not a meritocracy. Storytelling, in particular, is not a meritocracy. And yes, this is a particularly heartbreaking example of, of the whims and the vicissitudes of fate. Um, Aaron says, I wonder why it failed. It's way better than a lot of 80s hits. No, I think it failed for the reasons that I just outlined. I think it failed because it's not what it seems to be. It's not a, a classic fantasy. It's not a simple, somewhat whimsical tale. It is darker than that. And I think that one of the things that led to its its establishment as a legitimate classic is simply that its audience aged up with it. If you were, you know, six in 1986, by the time it was, it was you know, the year 2000 and you were 20 years old, you had kind of grown up with this movie and perhaps you were fascinated with it because of the Muppets or particular scenes or the puppets, I shouldn't say Muppets, because of the puppets or particular scenes or, or just the aesthetic of the film worked for you or it spoke to you in some profound way. But by the time that you yourself have grown into your adult sexuality and you look back at this movie... Suddenly a lot of things make sense, you guys. Suddenly a lot of this movie clicks into place. And when that happens, you begin to reappraise it. But if you go in cold, it can be difficult, I think, to, to read its tone and its intention accurately. There is a dark edge through the labyrinth. And that, I think, can turn off some viewers, particularly in 1986, when we weren't as accepting of adult tales occurring in media usually associated with children's literature. Now, in part because of the, the YA boom, and in part simply because media has become so much more fragmented in every possible way, in every possible form, we're now accustomed to the idea that Adventure Time, for example, which looks like you know a, a cartoon series for, for four-year-olds, 
Adventure Time can tell real sophisticated stories. It can bridge a gap between its adult audience and its juvenile audience. I think that that was not so common in 1986. I think that kids' movies, if you think about the Disney movies that came out through the 80s, they were very juvenile indeed. It wasn't until the mid to late 90s that we got into the Disney Renaissance and they actually started folding in real sophisticated storytelling into what had become a fairly well-established and rote pattern at that point. So Aaron, I think it didn't find its audience. I think it left its audience behind, but that is what has carried it on from this initial failure. Yeah. Um, Lauren says, that movie, Labyrinth, uh, I think we're talking about The Dark Crystal. Uh, that movie, Labyrinth and The Little Mermaid were the movies I watched over and over again as a child. I was five when Mermaid came out. Yes. I, I think that's true of a lot of people. I think that's true of a lot of people. I could definitely talk about The Dark Crystal at some point. That's, hmm, that's a much more classic fantasy story. But even then, it isn't without its complexity. It isn't without its, its subtlety and its interest. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron says, the dance party is the hero's journey ending and the hero going, screw it, I had more fun in fairy. That is one possible reading, which is really disturbing, if that's true. We'll, we'll get to all of that, I promise. Yes. Um, good, good. Not Muppets, they're creatures, says Lauren, correcting me. I know, I know, I'm terrible. All right. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. And I want to begin by talking, um, I guess, a little bit about the about the fairy tale origins of this story. And I want to talk in part, for those of you who have been coming with me on the journey through Tolkien's Middle-earth in there and back again, about the goblins in this movie and what we mean by the goblin king. Because in modern fantasy, we have, well, we've done what we do. We have compartmentalized, we have categorized, we have engaged with modern fantasy in a way that the medievalists who created this kind of storytelling would have appreciated wildly. The, the greatest kind of creative medieval impulse was the impulse to categorize. It was to seek to understand by drawing lines of differentiation. That was true in the natural world. It was true cosmologically, theologically, philosophically. It was true in every area of endeavor and expertise at that time. We've now done that to fantasy, and any nerd who's read a D&D source book can tell you what goblins are. We can tell you that, that they have these particular physical characteristics, these particular emotional characteristics, that they're generally aligned with the side of evil, and so on and so on and so on and so on. But that's not always the case. That hasn't always been true. The word fairy is attested in the English language from the early 14th century, from, from around 1300. Fairy enters the English language from the old French word fairy, meaning the land of fairies. So, you know, certain amount of literalism when we borrowed from the French back in the 14th century. Um, so fairy, as, as both the capital F fairy, the place, the realm, the supernatural realm, and fairies as in little mischievous creatures, that's existed in English from the 14th century. Goblin entered the, uh, entered the English language at about the same time, a little later, but about the same time. It also came from the Old French, but one of the primary meanings of goblin is simply an ugly fairy. The goblins, as we see them in Labyrinth, are fairies. They are not the diminutive Tinkerbell-style fairies that we meet right at the beginning of the film before Sarah even enters the labyrinth proper, though she is still crucially in Jareth's realm. Hey, threshold after threshold after threshold. Those Tinkerbell fairies, I genuinely believe, are included in the movie as a nod to that idea. The diminution of fairies in the Victorian era is one of the most interesting things that has happened to fairy stories since their original inception. We have taken 
what we might think of now in our D&D literate, Tolkien literate age as elves, we have taken those characters and shrunk them and made them harmless and made them tiny and made them the worst possible sin imaginable for creatures of this sort. We have made them cute. And this movie acknowledges that explicitly by having this Tinkerbell fairy right at the beginning. And of course, having the Tinkerbell fairy bite Sarah. Nothing that we expect is true within the labyrinth. And that isn't just textual, but metatextual. This isn't just a lesson for Sarah. Hey, Sarah, fairies are usually super cute, but this one, this one bit you. This is a lesson to us, the audience. This is an example of this text teaching us how to read it, which is something that I've returned to, I think, in every one of the uh, Point North one-shots so far. Texts teach you how to interpret them. And this is Labyrinth setting out its stall. This is Labyrinth telling you, no, there are little fairies, but they're not what you think. So maybe the other creatures aren't quite what you think either. I'm comfortable in the classical sense saying that every creature that Sarah encounters within the labyrinth, within Jareth's realm, is a fairy, including Jareth, because he occupies that elf king archetype. He is the closest that I've seen in, in a non-Peter Jackson movie of, of the last you know 40 years. He is the closest to the original conception of elves and fairies. That is what an elf was. That is what a fairy was. If you go back and you read, um, you know, the, the Green Knight, if you go back and you read, you know, the, the original, the oldest, the most dangerous kinds of fairy tales, he's what they're talking about. David Bowie almost specifically, almost literally could be what they're talking about because these elves inhabit their realm and sometimes transgress into the mortal realm and they do it with a swagger and they do it with sex appeal and they do it with danger. David Bowie is perfectly cast in this movie for a number of reasons, but that is the primary value. That ethereal, slightly androgynous quality that he possessed, that, that ability to inhabit and to express in subtle and unexpected ways is perfect for, for elves. I actually have a... Uh, I actually have a slide here, which will be familiar to, I don't normally do slides for the one shots, but here we are. I have a slide here that will be familiar to those of you who have been listening to There and Back Again. This is an excerpt from Terry Pratchett's novel, Lords and Ladies, which is the Discworld novel in which he tackles fairy tales and elves. And this is the quote. Elves are wonderful. They provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake. And if you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. And this idea of of enchantment, of fantasy, of terror and the terrific, this idea of glamour and marvel and wonder, this is absolutely encoded in Jareth uh, throughout the run of this movie. He is seductive and mesmerizing and still always impossibly dangerous. And that's, that's exactly as he should be. All right, I'm going to take a pause here to look at the YouTube chat. Um, Everyone should read, says Sarah Thomas, Catherine M. Briggs' Encyclopedia of Fairies. She's a contemporary of Tolkien and just brilliant. That she absolutely is. I don't actually have a copy of that book, but I have read that book several times over. Catherine M. Briggs, the Encyclopedia of Fairies. Like Sarah, I can't recommend that highly enough. Yes.
Yes. Um, Gregory's asking where the elves are bad quote from. That is from Lords and Ladies by Terry Pratchett. It's one of his Discworld novels. It is a genuinely excellent it's, it's a genuinely excellent story, of course, because all of Terry Pratchett's stories were generally excellent. Um, but it is also a really interesting perspective on fairy tale stories, on elves in particular, and on the way in which elves have been normalized, fairies have been normalized, in, in exactly that tradition that I was just describing, this Victorian tradition of diminution. You know, we take these dangerous, sexy, you know, terrifying creatures and we turn them eventually into Tinkerbell who, you know, perhaps has inherited some traits from that, those, that, that root inspiration, but isn't that, is safe and is harmless and so on and so forth. So that's exactly what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about in this excerpt when he's talking about words changing their meaning. That's part of this idea that, that myths can be normalized. And in the normalization, they become less apparently dangerous and so much more dangerous in practice. Yeah. Um, let me see, let me see, let me see. Yes, uh, Lauren's quoting here, Bowie saying that he saw Jareth as something like a washed-up rock star. I mean, not dissimilar, not dissimilar, yes. Oh, yes, and she's saying there's actually a weird sense where Jareth is the next incarnation. Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin saying Jareth. Yes, no, I think that's entirely true. You could do, I'm never going to, someone more skilled and more, more literate in the genre could do this far better than I, but you could actually do a close textual reading of David Bowie's career. You could actually look at these incarnations, these stories that he tells, and treat them like, like revisions to a manuscript. I think that you really could track the evolution of his personae, I guess, these multiple versions of himself, and, and do a close textual reading there. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, as I said, I'm not the person for the job, but uh, yes. Um, yes, I know. I, I'm saying Sarah a lot, and there are a lot of Sarahs in the chat, of course. I do apologize for that, particularly because, as Other Blue Girl says, head trip hearing my name so much, I forgot that was Jennifer Connolly's character name. I forgot, too, sitting down to watch the movie this week. I was just thinking of her as Jennifer Connolly, who was, by the way, when she shot this movie, 15 years old, and gives just an exceptional performance. And there are moments when she is stilted and it's deliberate, for example, the opening of the movie, and there are moments when she is stilted and it's perhaps less deliberate, but she manages to communicate a beautiful depth of feeling. She manages to communicate an absolute uh, presence in the action and clearly, clearly does so much better with the creatures throughout the movie than David Bowie does. David Bowie has a hard time dealing with the creatures throughout, the puppets throughout. Um, he has said before, had, had said many times prior to his death, that shooting this movie was difficult for him because here this creature was in front of him, but the voice wasn't coming from this creature. It was coming from, you know, some voice actor who was sitting just off the set, or it was coming from behind him, or it was coming from an earpiece, or it was, there was a disassociation for him between his presence in this world and the reality of, of making this film. So I think that she does a really, really good job. Yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, let's move on then. Victoria said, just watched The Dark Crystal for the first time this last winter. Weird movie, but I liked it. That's a pretty fair summation, actually. Yes. Other Blue Girl also says, Dark Crystal was so strange. I didn't like it when I first watched it as a teen. I might have to rewatch with a different perspective. Um, yeah, you may still hate it. Dark Crystal is a divisive movie. I think that's, I think that's fair to say. Um, okay. 
Let me see here. Aaron says, we should have a nice discussion about David, Bercy's, David Bowie's persona. Uh, excuse me. Aaron says that we should have a nice discussion about David Bowie's personas while discussing later parts of American gods. Yes, certainly a crossover there. The idea of, of being, um, well, I don't want to get into spoilers for American gods. Now is not the time perhaps for that. But Aaron, yes, put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. Yes, good. All right. Excellent. And no one, no one so far has mentioned uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me in which David Bowie is even more otherworldly and weird in that movie. Oh, I, even as I say that, Gene shouts out, but no, seriously, his role in the Twin Peaks universe fits. It super does. It super does. All right. So I wanted to talk a little about um, about labyrinths, really, and about um, the the mythic and, and symbolic importance of labyrinths, whether... We're talking about literal labyrinths, as I said, you know, we can go back to, to Daedalus's labyrinth on Crete, um, or less literal, but still labyrinthine circumstances and settings. Um, anytime a character gets lost in the forest, for example, we can look at that as a kind of metaphorical labyrinth. The idea of establishing a, a spatial environment in which one's present location is somehow undetermined is somehow not just undetermined perhaps but even indeterminate the idea that the landscape can change fluidly around you whether you are in Mirkwood with Bilbo and company or you are in the labyrinth with Sarah the idea that the world around us is fluid is one of the core ideas that that uh we, we see again and again in fairy tales particularly those stories of mortal beings who, tra who who trespass into the realm of fairy. And there are basically two kinds of fairy stories. Fairy stories are never about fairies. They're never just about fairies. It is never the story of, or at least until, you know, the rise of Disney and, and straight to DVD Tinkerbell movies, I guess. The stories of fairies are never just stories about fairies. Instead, they are stories of mortals who transgress into the fairy realm by accident, usually sometimes on purpose, or they're stories of fairies who transgress into the mortal realm almost always on purpose. There's this, oh, again, I hesitate before I make declarative statements like this, but I can't think of a fairy tale which features, at least a, a, a classic medieval fairy tale that features a fairy transgressing into the mortal realm by accident. I need to give that more thought. Sometimes in a subplot, sometimes in a, you know, there's something there, but not a core narrative at least. But the labyrinth there encapsulates perfectly this notion of the impermanence and the unreliability of the realm of fairy, that once we are in Jareth's realm, the rules no longer apply. And that's echoed rather beautifully through the movie in two different ways, because we have the simple impermanent, <laughs> we have the simple impermanence of the labyrinth itself. The labyrinth itself will change shape and will be treacherous. We get that weird uh, forced perspective uh, beat right after Sarah arrives in the labyrinth when she talks to the worm and realizes, oh no, this isn't a solid wall. It just looks like a solid wall and blows the minds of every child in the audience. And yes, some of the adults too. So there's the idea that the labyrinth itself is unreliable, but also we get the idea that the, the creatures of the labyrinth are unreliable. We get the odd little creatures that flip over the paving stones after uh, Sarah has drawn her chalk mark or simply get up and turn it around. We get this combination of, of a kind of passive inherent unreliability, a, a treachery, uh, an instinct toward betrayal. And we get this active, you know, this active pursuit of deception. Sometimes that seems inadvertent, like the weird creature coming up the stairs, flipping over the flagstone and going back down again. It's not necessarily clear that he 
is is trying to foil Sarah's plan to to keep track of of her path. But the second time we see that happen, when the, the stone gets shifted through 90 degrees, that does seem intentional. So there are a couple of different ways that we can see fairy here pushing back against Sarah's fundamental alien nature. She doesn't belong here. And Toby doesn't belong here either, which does lead to some interesting thoughts as we get toward the, the what I guess we might call the Escher sequence right at the end of the movie. Toby is going to be turned into a goblin. He is going to be rendered native here. And that is not a simple physical transformation. That is not a, even, even a, a transformation of personality or emotion. This is a fundamental transformation of, of what Toby is because we are transplanting him from the mundane realm into the supernatural realm. That's about as full a, a transformation as you can possibly imagine. So Sarah's alien nature here in, in the labyrinth is vital to understanding her path through it, though also, interestingly, vital to understanding her triumph over it. Because the creatures who inhabit the labyrinth seem to be somewhat more bound by the rules of the labyrinth. They are more literal. They are less intelligent than Sarah is. We get great examples of this as Sarah solves the door riddle, for example, and does so beautifully. That is a great heroine moment. That is, she is up there, you know, um, Elizabeth and Sarah are right here uh, in the YouTube chat tonight, and I would be really interested to know where you guys would put Sarah from Labyrinth in the uh, in the Disney Princess Deathmatch stakes. Is she up there? Does she work for you as a heroine? I'd be interested to know. Type in your answers, and I'll read them out, I guess, because this isn't quite as interactive as it should be. You guys, they're actually in the other room. They could just come in here and tell me, but they're not going to do that. They're going to type in the YouTube chat because, hey, professional podcasters. Um, okay, so we talked about... We talked about the labyrinth. We talked about thresholds. We talked about, we talked about, or rather we didn't talk about, but we are about to talk about the gift of the crystal ball. The gift of the crystal ball is a really interesting one. This is right at the beginning of the film. The gift of the crystal ball is not for a girl who takes care of a screaming baby. When I said that labyrinth is all about sex, I kind of meant it. It kind of is, but it's about sex in part as a token of adolescence. It's what, what it's really about at a fundamental level is the leaving behind of childhood and the picking up of an adult identity, an adult, uh, an adult place in the world. And sex is, of course, a major part of that. That's one of the major thresholds that must be crossed, you know, internally as we, as we transit from, from childhood into adolescence and thus into adulthood. The idea that the crystal ball can be given to someone who is special, who is pure, who is untouched by the demands of a screaming baby puts an interesting primary focus on on Sarah's immaturity, on her childlike fate. All the more as we move into the, the second half of the discussion. Yeah. Um, yes, good. Um, Yes, Robert Hickok says, I love how the denizens of the labyrinth are all bound to rules while our heroine is not. She discovers more of her freedom as the tale rolls along. She has such wonderful agency, particularly right there at the end of the movie. And I should talk a little about this too, because the words are important. You guys, names are important, but words are important. We see, obviously, the first example of that is right at the beginning of the movie, where Sarah has to say the necessary words for the Goblin King to take Toby. Then right at the end of the movie, she wins her freedom, wins Toby's freedom, saves the day through the application of the right words. But scattered throughout the movie, there are examples of the power of 
the right word at the right time. We get the whole unfolding story of, of Hoggle's name from Jareth. You know, he refused or inadvertently gets Hoggle's name right once in the course of the movie, but but can't name this creature. And so Hoggle is less loyal than perhaps he might be. And that is counteracted by Sarah's use of the word friend, which becomes incredibly significant as we move forth. And it's not just the emotional state, because the emotional state was pre-existing. There was already a connection between the two of them. But giving that emotional state a name, a powerful, true you know, iconic name like friend is enough to draw these two people together. And that really, really sets the stage for the end of the movie. Um, <laughs> okay. So Elizabeth has given me Sarah's score. Uh, oh no, this is for Sarah's autonomy. Okay. So if you guys haven't listened to Disney, Disney princess Deathmatch, a, you should, it's super fun. It's, it's really fantastic. You can find that at commonroomradio.com. in that show, Sarah and Elizabeth look at every Disney princess character in turn your definition of princess may vary, but they use the official list, so no one can blame them for that. Uh, they they gauge these heroines according to, to a number of criteria. Here they are. For autonomy, Sarah gets five. For attitude, she gets four. She doesn't score for Aria because she doesn't sing in the course of the movie, which is unfortunate. Animal companions, she gets a six out of five, astonishingly. For attire, she gets a five out of five. And for her survival stakes in the zombie apocalypse, she gets a four out of five. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that probably puts her in the top three, you guys, maybe top five. For uh, Disney Princess Deathmatch, I'm inclined to agree. I think Sarah's an excellent, excellent heroine. Yes. Good, good. All right. It is, as I'm recording this, 8.33. And that means it's 6 o'clock. We've got to talk about how, we've got to talk about what this movie is really about. And there is, I think, a read of Labyrinth. There is a read of adult fairy tales or, or fairy tales that, that contain that dark edge. There is this supposition that fairy tales should be harmless, that fairy tales should be genteel, that fairy tales should, at their, their, their most excessive, impart some kind of fairly elementary moral lesson. You know, it is bad to do this thing. Do not do this thing. That's the heart of a fairy tale. But that's not true. That's not what fairy tales were. That's not fundamentally what fairy tales are. Fairy tales sprang forth from a time when these stories were needed to explain the world around us. We're needed to identify and to to draw together cultures. These stories were needed in order to impart moral instruction in a way that wasn't simply didactic, but was emotional, that, that, that assaulted and, and changed minds. Stories were enormously powerful. Fairy tales were enormously powerful. And fairy tales are dark and bloody and urgent and dangerous. Fairy tales, more often than not, are about sex and sexuality. Consider, for example, Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood, as it is presented to us today, is a cute story of a girl who is taking her her grandma cookies or whatever is in her basket. That changes radically, by the way, from version to version of, of Little Red Riding Hood, just you know, so you know. But in most American versions that I've heard, it's generally cookies or it's a pie or it's something, some kind of food stuff. She's taking this to her grandmother and it is almost, it has almost become a story about the dangers of the natural world. But that is not what Little Red Riding Hood is about. Little Red Riding Hood is about a woman confronting the dark temptation of the forest, even the dark temptation of the wolf, the dark temptation of her own nascent, bestial, animalistic sexuality. That is the heart of that story. When she is told to stay on the path, it is not because the, the, the woods are dangerous in the sense that, that she will simply be attacked, but her you know, innocence and, and virtue will be preserved. 
it is because to stray from the path means that you are no longer a good girl. That, that to, to engage with the wolf is to be forever changed. So this is a strict moral lesson that instructs us to, no, no, stay within your bounds. Just, just walk straight ahead. Everything is fine. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. There's nothing to see over there. But of course there is because the wolf is tempting and the woods are tempting. And we can think of Midsummer Night's Dream and we can think of Into the Woods to a certain degree. We can think of these stories where, where the realm of fairy, symbolized most often by the deep forest, is a place of brooding and urgent and dangerous sexuality. That is absolutely true of Labyrinth. This movie is, at its heart, an exploration of Sarah's... Well, the exact word is a little tricky, actually. The exact word is a little tricky because it's not completely clear where Sarah is vis-a-vis her sexuality at the beginning of the film, at least. And if anything less clear at the end of the film where she is vis-a-vis her sexuality, we get this line from her mother right at the beginning of the movie, from her stepmother, I should note, importantly. Um, Sarah says, how do you know what my plans are? And Sarah's mom says, I assume you'd tell me if you had a date. I'd like it if you had a date. You should have dates at your age. And Sarah responds to this with disgust and runs to her room, not just to a room, not just to any old room, but specifically to her room that is filled, consumed, replete with the tokens of her childhood. She literally regresses back to an earlier state of being as she enters this room. This is part of this core narrative that Sarah is being confronted with her incipient adulthood. She's being confronted with this this tremulous, you know, terrifying descent into adulthood and into the recognition of her own mortality. This is one of the ways in which sex and death actually go together inextricably within the realm of fairy tales, because to be sexually mature, to acknowledge the circle of life and death and desire, you are also almost inescapably, almost inescapably, acknowledging your own mortality. So as you embrace sex, as you embrace sex with this this urgent febrile desire, you are also, in a sense, embracing your own mortality, embracing your own impermanence. You are embracing the inevitability of death, even apart from Yeah, I guess I'd want to draw a distinction there because oftentimes sex is represented as dangerous in and of itself. There are innumerable fairy tales where that is the case, where where to have sex is to die because the object of your lust, the object of your passion is not what they seem to be. But even if that isn't true, even if you are having a perfectly happy and wonderful and, and positive and consensual sexual relationship with this, you know, elf that you met in the woods... Even if that is true, by embracing sex and the cycle of life, you are in part acknowledging your own mortality. You are crossing that threshold. You are crossing that philosophical Rubicon from which you know no man returns. Once you have acknowledged your own mortality, it is impossible to, to blind yourself to it, to deafen yourself to it. Wow, you guys, this session got pretty dark pretty quick, didn't it? Let's talk about David Bowie's pants. Um, I'm flitting back and forth between Bowie and Bowie through this. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't think I've ever said David Bowie in my life. The man's name is David Bowie, or was David Bowie, at least if you live in the part of the world that I used to live in. So I apologize for all of the Bowie that has slipped in. Consider that a concession to our American listeners, if any of you say Bowie. Um, Gregory says, I'd love to have a fairy tale where there were two parents that lived through the whole story. When Moana's parents were alive at the end of the movie, I was shocked. Yes. And Rebecca says, this is a great point. Rebecca says, female sexuality is often treated as especially dangerous. Yes. 
one of the reasons that fairy tales are more likely to have heroines than heroes is that fairy tales are oftentimes predicated upon that kind of moral instruction. Good girls don't. Here's how to be a good girl. Stay on the path. Don't look at the wolf. Here's how to be a good girl. Be sensitive enough that you can detect a pea through 20 mattresses. Here's how to be a good girl. Kiss the, kiss the frog. Transform him back into a prince. Metaphorically, here's how to be a good girl. Do whatever is necessary to get yourself a, val a valuable husband. These are the lessons that we impart to our children, or that we imparted to our children. I mean, honestly, so many of these stories have now become adulterated through Disney retelling that, that they don't carry that same core to them. I don't think that any, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old girl today is going to read Red Riding Hood and get the core metaphor and feel as though oh, I must remain buttoned up and chased and stay on the path for the rest of my life. I don't think that the metaphor, at least in the modern versions of that story, is as communicable as that, but yes. Um, Yes. I don't know, man. <laughs> okay, let me see if there's anything here that I have. Oh, God, I've missed so much. You guys are brilliant. You're just fantastic. Um, yes, as, as Sophia says here, the Red Hood in early Little Red Stories was entirely a, well, you shouldn't have been dressed like that. Absolutely. The Red Hood itself is provocative. The Red Hood itself is is scandalous and is thumbing a nose at convention. If you get if you're dressed like that, of course you're gonna go out in the woods and get attacked by a wolf. Of course you are. I mean, are you kidding me? Not only go out and get attacked by a wolf, by the way, but in some versions of the story, the wolf is going to eat your grandmother and then lay in wait for you in a literal bed. Because fairy tales don't often, you know disguise their core purpose with excessive metaphor, I think it's fair to say. Um, let's, um, oh, and as Sophia notes here, yes, fairy tales were also passed mainly from mother to daughter during housework. That's not always true. Um, it very much depends upon the the cultural root of the fairy tale. That is certainly true in most of Western Europe. There are other fairy tale traditions, which interestingly are passed down on the, the masculine side that are passed down from father to son. That's, it, it gives rise to a very different kind of fairy story as one might expect. But yes, particularly in Western Europe, it's absolutely true that, that the telling of stories in general was a surprisingly feminine thing. You wouldn't know that from the written history, but the, the oral tradition was much more biased toward feminine, toward female storytellers than, than we might expect in our, in our modern world. Yeah, good. Elizabeth says, hell no, we want to be ruled by Jareth and have him be our slave, forget the good girl path. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, so let's talk about David Bowie. Sexual predatory, working at 110% of his skill here. Um, it is possible that a few people have noticed the bulge in the Goblin King's pants before. I don't necessarily think that I need to travel down that particularly well-worn road, except to note, as has been raised here in the YouTube chat, that was padding, I'm told. Um, but that is only one example of, uh, it is obviously the most literal example, but there are plenty of other examples of powerful sexual metaphors throughout this movie, powerful sexual iconography throughout this movie. He's also strutting around in this outfit with his little, his wand, his rod, his short staff, whatever we're going to call that, that he uses to gesture, that he uses to, to, to create emphasis. This is absolutely a, a profound phallic symbol. And again, by no means is it the only one. Um, Perhaps the most powerful one, though, is the, the peach, the drugged peach. Um, why a peach and not the more traditional apple? Um, well, because 
peaches are symbols of of sexual maturity, of of se sexual fecundity. They are symbols of of ripeness and readiness. The only way this metaphor could have been more on the nose is if Jareth had somehow enchanted a drugged cherry and given that to Sarah instead. Um, the peach dream that we're launched into from that, I'm keeping a close eye on the time, you guys. I swear I've got 15 minutes, but they're going to be jam-packed with information. The peach dream is, is fascinating because on the one hand, it is genuinely beautiful. On the one, I know many, many people who love the peach dream ballroom sequence because it's just beautiful. It's just stunning. And it's kind of fairy tale in the Disney sense. We're kind of breaking from this older tradition of, of, of blood and fury and sex to a much more refined, much more Beauty and the Beast kind of fairy tale tradition. Though, again, when I say Beauty and the Beast, I mean the Disney version, because the original Beauty and the Beast, as you might expect, given the content of the last 45 minutes of the session, had a very different, uh, had a very different intent behind it. Um, <laughs> a genuinely terrible intent behind it, you guys. A genuinely, uh, genuinely terrible intent. Um, so the idea of the Peach Dream sequence is actually really rather beautiful, but then you start to notice things. And it's not just David Bowie hitting on a 15-year-old girl, though when you know that those things are true, it does become slightly uncomfortable. Um, but this is the only part of the movie where we see a large number of actual human beings. We've had Sarah's parents previously. We have Jareth, of course, who's almost, almost a recognizable human being. But here we have mature men and women in sexy outfits and, and amazing masks. We have this, this air of bacchanalian excess. So it feels all at once romantic, but also undeniably sensual, if not outright sexual. There's a version of the scene. It may be the case that, that but for some discreet and creative camera work, that this is basically a scene from Eyes Wide Shut, that this is a very different kind of, of, of you know, orgiastic celebration. That would not be inappropriate metaphorically or literally in the context of this story. This is Sarah's inner life given voice through the, the application of, you know, drug peach. Um, she is here seeing something that is on the one hand, the the fantasy on the one hand the the disney fantasy of of what it is like to go to a ball and have a handsome man be interested in you but on the other is edgier is more urgent is in the blood and in the bone and and throughout the body that this is there is something sexier about that and that is fascinating and what an accomplishment to do that in a movie like this what an accomplishment to have this incredible exploration into peculiarly feminine adolescent sexuality and wrap it up in what is an action adventure movie you know what what is a fairly straightforward uh a fairly straightforward plot it works really rather beautifully there um it's worth noting too that these symbols and i'm going to get to jareth in, in in just a moment and the conclusion but these symbols of adolescence are not all symbols of sexuality though some of them kind of exist across two different spaces Certainly her, her will is tested, her goodness is tested, her virtue is tested throughout her trip through the labyrinth. And then we get to something like, well, the well of hands, for example, this groping, expressive well of hands, which she plummets down, where the hands themselves adopt the form of faces and communicate with her, because sometimes hands can be more expressive than other body parts. Sometimes that desire to touch and be touched can be more communicative, particularly when you are 15 years old. Then, though, we get to the bulk of eternal stench, which 
is kind of used as a pretty good joke, I think, in the first instance, and then manifests itself later in the movie. And this is, for me, perhaps the most the most never-ending story part of Labyrinth. Um, it's a really interesting idea. It's, it's primal in the way that the best fairy tale ideas are. It, it's kind of elemental in that sense. And it reflects metaphorically, I think, two things. The first is simply the inevitable, the inevitable betrayal of the body as we approach adolescence. For your childhood, throughout your childhood, your body is a fairly reliable thing. Yes, it's changing rapidly and you're going to trip over your own feet, but, you know, more or less, you know what it is and what it can do, and then you hit puberty. And all at once, your body betrays you. All at once, there is this fear that your body is wrong and will never be right. And, of course, that is associated with smells. That is associated with, with the, the, the musk of adulthood coming upon you. This is, an important kind of, uh, this is an important threshold idea in and of itself. At exactly the same time, the bog of eternal stench works a little differently because it carries with it the idea, I think, the implicit idea, thankfully, that... Once you get dirty, you can never get clean. That once the good girl strays from the path, she can never get back to it. Once you are tainted, you are tainted forever. And because it is stench, because it is foul, that miasma is going to be carried with you through your entire life. That there is, even in this movie, which is more progressive with its sexual politics than we might expect, there is even at the heart of this story a kind of... of reactionary moral impulse, which is, of course, appropriate because this would have been enfolded into the stories which Sarah had read, which would have led to... Okay. I'm kind of begging the question there, aren't I? Is the labyrinth literally real? Is the labyrinth a creation of Sarah's imagination? There's really only one definitive piece of evidence that I can think of that suggests that the labyrinth is in any way actually real, or is at least possessed of an identity, a reality outside of Sarah. And that is simply that she doesn't know the word oubliette. That word is used to describe the place where she ends up, but she doesn't know it. So that word must have come from somewhere. It must have been inserted into this fantasy somehow. Someone other than Sarah must have known that word, which means that there must be a presence within the fantasy other than Sarah. Apart from that, pretty much everything here can be traced back to Sarah's essential insecurity, to her adolescence, to that process of maturation, to her obsession with fantasy and fairy tale, to the toys in her room, even, and this is quietly disturbing, even Jareth himself can be traced back to her real life. Because on the mirror in Sarah's room, there is a picture of a woman, presumably her mother, because there are other pictures of this woman on her mirror, but there is a picture of her mother with David Bowie, with a guy who looks a lot like Jareth. And we know from the beginning of the movie that Sarah is at this point living with her stepmother and father. It doesn't, I think, strain credulity too much that maybe... Sarah's mother left her father, that maybe Sarah's mother had an affair, had a sexual relationship with another man, a man who coincidentally looks just like Jareth. It is entirely possible that to Sarah, the lure, the temptation of mature, dangerous sexuality literally looks like David Bowie, that she is populating this fantasy realm. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that the entire story is a dream sequence. It doesn't mean that these stakes don't matter, that there isn't a Goblin King. It is possible that we can inhabit a space where both of these things are true. Where there is a Goblin King, he looks like this because Sarah expects him to look like this. There are 
not common, but there are traditions in fairy tales of, of that kind of of you know inherently metatextual relationship, that kind of, of reciprocal relationship in a way. So that could work out too. It is possible that these characters within the labyrinth look the way that they look because Sarah expects them to look that way. It is possible too that she is creating this entire thing out of whole cloth. It is possible too that this is a terrible nightmare and that it would have been fine anyway which is going to take us to the epilogue. It's going to take us to the denouement. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, because of course, in the few minutes that I have left, I absolutely have to, um, I absolutely have to talk about the final climax. I have to talk about the shift that happens in this movie, you guys. And it is a shift that is so predicated upon David Bowie's charisma and his presence that it's honestly, I think a little difficult to notice every time you watch the movie. This is very simply a movie about the baby. The stakes of this conflict are baby Toby, and that's it, right up until the climax. I mean, arguably, the drug peach kind of, you know, skews the path of the plot a little, but right at the end of the movie, we get this odd transition into an explicitly, not explicitly sexual, explicitly intimate, explicitly personal, explicitly adult relationship between Sarah and Jareth. This is the line that was quoted in the chant earlier. Just fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. That offer, just be exactly what I tell you to be, and I will be yours. That is emblematic of so many, so many calamitous and destructive relationships. That is exactly the offer that is made, particularly by adolescents, you know, particularly by, by, by young people who haven't yet established their own identity sufficient or, or with sufficient rigor to kind of counteract that temptation because who doesn't want to be adored? Who doesn't want to be served? Who doesn't want to have David Bowie as a slave? That's a really tempting thing. And all you have to do to get it is fundamentally change who you are. All you have to do is give up all agency and autonomy and you get this amazing thing. That doesn't sound so bad. That could be worse, right? Particularly when you're 15 and you're unsure of your place in the world and you don't know what there is that you can even expect. You don't know what the rules are. You don't know what you can demand or what you can hope for. This is, well, this is a tempting offer. And Sarah is in part, I think obviously a little tempted. But ultimately, she rejects him with the right words. As we discussed right back at the beginning of the session, she uses the right words and in the right hands, the right words become a spell. She breaks the enchantment by saying, you have no power over me. The significance of that line has haunted me, honestly, because I'm unsure of its exact meaning. I'm unsure of its exact purpose. Are we supposed to read that literally? That Sarah is literally breaking the enchantment. She is recognizing for the first time that this is illusory, that, that none of this is actually real, that he literally has no power over her and that she can leave anytime she likes. Is that what we're supposed to take from it? Maybe. I don't think so. It feels as though it speaks much more to Sarah's sense of her own self and her sense of her own agency, that she is recognizing that she doesn't have to submit, that to submit would be entirely voluntary. The reason that Jareth rules is that his minions, his lackeys, his servants, his people choose to give him that power, that 
any taking of power, the, the forcible uh, co-opting of power is dependent, necessarily dependent upon the willingness of the submissive, that, that power cannot be taken in that sense, it can only be yielded. And Sarah in this moment exhibits exactly the maturity that we've seen from her through the rest of the movie. Uh, okay, not the entirety of the rest of the movie. It's not fair. Haunts me as I watch this movie. It is, it is like nails down a chalkboard for me, but that's fine. Um, it's also appropriately adolescent, so whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But this moment where she realizes her power is arguably the most mature moment in the film. Here she she takes her own agency, she shatters the spell, she saves the day, and everything is great. Then she returns home. I really do only have a couple minutes left. So if you have any closing thoughts, shout out in the YouTube chat, and we'll see if I can get through some of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll see how long that, that lasts. We'll see how many I get through. Um, Let's cover this really quickly. Sarah returns home. She has the baby. The baby is in in his crib. This is fine. Sarah gives the baby Lancelot. She actually surrenders. As we cover earlier in the movie, I don't really have time to talk about the peddler woman with the, the collection of her, her every possession on her back and the way that she is burying Sarah under this mound of her treasured possessions that if we cannot free ourselves from the past, then we will never be able to move forward and grow. All of that is fantastic. But here we see the ultimate realization of that where she voluntarily gives the teddy bear Lancelot to Toby. That is sweet. That is great. Hey, you guys, that's the end of the movie. We wrapped everything up with a bow and we landed our theme just perfectly, except we super didn't. Because there is a tension at the heart of Jim Henson. This is a movie about the giving up of childhood and the acceptance of adulthood, the acceptance of sexuality and maturity and the inevitability of our own demise. This is... This is a coming-of-age tale in the classic sense. But that was somewhat antithetical to Jim Henson's whole deal. He believed in the, in the, the maintenance of childhood. He believed in the integration of the child self with the adult self, that to preserve childlike wonder imbued adult life with magic and with purpose and with joy, and that that was no bad thing, quite the opposite of being no bad thing. It was actively desirable. This is not that story. So right at the end, where we have the impromptu dance party in Sarah's room and all of her friends show up, and you were there, and you were there, and you're the, the door guys? The door guys from like 20 minutes in? I think I remember you. You look like the door guys. That'll be fine. Even the, the, the fireys are there, for goodness sake, which is the most absurd and psychedelic sequence in the entire movie. Definitely go and look up the lyrics to that song. I was lucky enough to be watching this movie with Sarah Kate Pizant, who is in the YouTube chat, though I think by proxy, uh, right now. And she went and looked up the lyrics to the fiery song because they're incomprehensible in the movie and no less incomprehensible when you can actually read them aloud. Um, that dance party at the end to me, even the idea that we'll always be here when you need us stands in direct opposition to the actual thematic heart of this movie, which is, no, actually there does come a time when you have to surrender the things of your youth. Not maybe all of them and not maybe completely, but you can't hold on to everything. But here, Sarah holds on to everything. This is the loophole that allows me to enjoy the end of this movie. It's Jareth. It's the owl in the tree looking on. 
it is entirely possible that the dance party scene right at the end of the movie is a step backward, that it is a regression for Sarah, that having just asserted her authority and her agency and her maturity and God knows her femininity, having asserted these things in a remarkably adult fashion, she then retreats again. She takes that step back into childhood. She is woman enough to give Lancelot to Toby, but she is girl enough that she still wants the rest of her toys and she still wants this, this fantasy element here. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that, as indicated by Jareth sitting outside the window watching her and the, the sense of doom that that carries with it, the sense that, okay, this is fine for now, but real talk, this is not going to last. That does, I think, speak to the inherent confusion of adolescence. I think it speaks to the idea that, that we do not progress from childhood to maturity on this, this smooth gradient where each day we are 2.7% more adult than we were the day before. That graph, if there even is such a graph, is jagged and full of regression, full of collapse and sudden ascent. It is not a smooth road for most of us. I don't think that that's intentional. I think that the beat at the end here is a nod toward Jim Henson's idea that childhood, childlikeness should be preserved. That stands uncomfortably with the rest of the movie for me as a, as a thematic statement. But I can work around it right there at the end and resolve it into a place that I find, if anything, even more rewarding, though I still don't actually like the dance party. I can kind of work through it and explain it away. But yes, that's it. Guys, it is 9.01 and I have another show to do. Let's wrap this thing up. Um, Aaron says, stuffed animals, ridiculous, runs off to hug an old leather-bound wind in the willows. Hey, 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 hey. Books don't count, but books are different. Different rules apply to books. If you don't have a beloved copy of Wind in the Willows or a beloved copy of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or, or any one of a, a hundred other texts, then, I, I mean, that's fine. Those don't count. We can, we can still be adults and hold on to those particular childish things. That's just fine. Uh, let me see here. Lauren says, uh, all of you includes Jareth. This is, um, oh, right. I see that, that even, even Jareth is, is, uh, yes, is, is prone to this, this kind of, of, <clears throat> excuse me, incipient maturity. You know, this idea that, that we all change and transform. That's very good. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. I am going to have to wrap this up, you guys, because I have a million other things to do. Um, yes. Good. Uh, yeah, I should say, Gene here is saying, I, as an adult woman, in caps, still like stuffed animals and hold emotional attachment to them. Yeah, I have stuffed animals. You guys have whatever you need. Do whatever you want. No rules, just right, as is often said right here in this very studio. That is completely fine. I am certainly not asserting that in order... Look at the shelf behind me right now. You see these Mario blocks right here? I am not asserting that we must put away childish things in order to become full and measured adults to, to inhabit our agency with, with gravitas and with authority. I'm certainly not saying that that's the case. My argument is that the movie is saying that is the case for about 98% of its running time. And then we have a dance party. So, you know, make of that what you will. All right, let's wrap this up. Guys, this has been an absolute uh, pleasure. If you have suggestions, if there are topics that you would like me to discuss here in a one-shot seminar, there are two ways of doing that. You can tweet at me, you can email me, you can find me on Facebook, you can suggest things. And if I'm particularly won over by the topic in, in question, then I will do it. Or you can coerce me. You can make me do your bidding as though you yourself were Jareth. You can head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, pledge at the $20 a month level, and I will do one of these lectures on anything you like. Make demands of me. I live for this stuff. It's 
<laughs> it's just a lot of fun. Okay, let's wrap this up. I'm already, I'm getting reminders here in the corner of my screen that I should have started my other session a few minutes ago. If you are following me over to the Patreon live Q&A, then that will be wonderful. You can go and pledge your support at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia right now if you want in on that hour-long Q&A discussion. If not, then I shall see you all very soon. Stay tuned for, for new updates. When I ran the poll to determine which movie I was going to talk about for this one shot, there were really only two outstanding responses. Labyrinth won, obviously, but Casablanca came in second. And I think Casablanca is going to be the next one shot that I produce. And that's probably not going to be next week, but very likely the week after. So stick around for that. If you have thoughts on Casablanca, as I do, I think that is a magnificent film. And again, a film of surprising depth and complexity, then uh, then definitely you know stick around for the next one shot. You can also find the podcast feed for the Point North one shots on iTunes and wherever you find good podcasts. That will do it for tonight. I'm going to go and, I don't know, pour another drink and then do a Patreon q and I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks so much for being here. Take care.